Today's episode is brought to you by Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER, spelled out, when you visit store.dscvrd.co. Discovered is definitely the coolest magazine around. They cover so many bands that uh, other publications just don't. And uh, I love them for it. Support Discovered. You won't regret it. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. This is episode 78. And if it's your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. I am so excited to say my guest this week is Chris Ryan. I am a huge Chris Ryan fan or uh, a CR head. If you're uh, used to the lingo on the shows that he's a part of, Um, he's a senior editor over at the ringer and he's a writer and, uh, he's a podcaster extraordinaire. He does a show called the watch. He's often on episodes of the big picture and my favorite, a show called the rewatchables, which is, uh, one of the most enjoyable film podcasts that I've found. So if you're a big movie fan and you uh, haven't checked out the rewatchables, definitely get on that immediately. Uh, but yeah, shout out to Ian Cohen for setting this up. This was a really, really fun chat. But before we get to that, I would like to shout out Deathwish Inc. For 20 years, Deathwish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with the recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greek Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail Body, and more. Get 10% off all Deathwish music and merch in their store using the link deathwishinc.com slash the first ever, which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for only items included. Again, that is 10% off all Deathwish releases and merch when you visit deathwishinc.com slash the first ever. And in case you missed it, they did just reissue the Converge Agoraphobic Nosebleed Split, the Poacher Diaries. I would hop on that. Um, also, yo, there's a bonus episode available on the Patreon right now where Chris Ryan very kindly answers questions that were submitted by subscribers. It's a longer episode, too. It's a good one. Uh, Chris is awesome. This is such a fun conversation. Hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon if you'd like to support the show, hear that bonus episode, you know, have the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests. Uh, This week is crazy. There's been a lot of uh, guests that I've uh, announced because I have to build up episodes for this upcoming tour, which I will say is very, very soon. Oakland is sold out. Toronto is sold out. Uh, Grab tickets right now at touchemore.com slash tour uh touche vein gleamer third face also touche vein military gun scowl some dates with closer coming very very soon tour starts march 4th i hope to see you there all right without further ado here is my conversation with chris ryan what's up chris this is uh this is such an honor i'm so excited to talk to you how are you today 
Dude, thank you so much for having me. I, I definitely had like in the t- time since you've asked me to be on this pod to now a real gut check about my credibility to come on this podcast. But I think I'm, I think I pass like with a 67%. So we'll see. <laughs> How did you land on 67? Well, because like I'm not like I was not like a hardcore kid, but like hardcore definitely had like a huge, huge, huge impact on me. And I am now have kind of had this weird hardcore renaissance which I have nothing to do with. Like there's nowhere like it's like in my apartment, I'm 44. Like there's just nowhere to go with like, damn, I like gulch. And like, (laughs) I have have no one to share that with. Like I try sharing it with friends my age and they're like, yeah, cool. Uh, My kid just woke up, but I'll I'll come to, you know, I'll come, I'll look at that YouTube video later. Um, But yeah, it's, it's really awesome to be talking to you. Uh, that's a, that's very sweet. It's uh yeah, I mean, and thankfully with this show, like I've tried to do my best to where it's like, no, you don't have to be punk affiliated. I talk to anybody, <laughs> you know, like I've talked to like a cartoonist from the New Yorker, but the thing you come to find out is like, there are like, for most people, they had at least a point in their life where they liked something alt. And that's yes. sort of where like the framework kind of comes in eventually, just because Maybe that's just my brain, the way my brain is wired. Well, I definitely but... passed that test then. Yeah, yeah. no, 100%. <laughs> um, so before we before we start, and I'm sure you're going to be talking at nauseam in the next couple of weeks about this, but um, I woke up as much as I was do with all the uh, the Oscar nomination uh, stuff coming out. Are you just quick answer? Are you are you let down by anything? Or are you psyched on on where that's at? Um, I it's weird because like you know, so I do the big picture. A lot. It's Sean yeah. does the big picture, but I'll appear on the big picture a bunch. And I think one thing that like is different about me and Sean is like I never really had like this huge obsession with the Oscars as an institution. Um, but it has been interesting to like work with Sean over the last ten years, really, and watch like how the Oscars have changed and how that impacts what he does. So I guess like nothing surprises me with the Oscars. I don't think it's like a bad batch of movies for Best Picture, all in all, given like what happened. I think what people are kind of like grappling with is do the Oscars have a responsibility to like nominate hugely popular movies to save the Oscars themselves? So like if you have Spider-Man and best picture, they had to have Dune in there, but if it's only movies like power of the dog, are, can you really be mad if only like 5 million people watch the Oscars or 7 million people watch the Oscars? That's a great point. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I think a big conversation is that like some, like what, like three of the movies made hardly any money yeah in the box office so that's yeah. totally true yeah and then it's like the like would you was your favorite movie of last year nominated for an oscar this year uh some in it was it ended up being licorice pizza but like yeah. you know in some categories sure but and that's cool I, like i'm yeah. i'm glad I, and in any other year i'm not sure it would have like if there had been like a full theatrical push for everything and everything had kind of come out on time. I'm not sure Licorice would have gotten nominated. Like my favorite movie of last year was the Velvet Underground documentary. And that didn't even get best doc. I, I didn't think it was going to get best picture or anything. But sure. I was definitely like, this is the most impressive thing I saw this year. It's just such a strange award situation because they're like, they're trying to still maintain like a level of like monoculture credibility and um and popularity but at the same time like the movies have kind of bifurcated where it's like either like these smaller dramas that are on streamers and then superhero movies yeah i just it's funny i actually ended up watching that uh the velvet underground documentary last night because i just hadn't got around to it between you and a couple other friends always you know like talking it up i was like i gotta i gotta finally watch this i really enjoyed it i really did i uh i like that it, it really did focus on 
what an interesting collective art scene really did exist and how I can't think to any, like I can't point to anything else that's ever come close to that where all of these people (laughs) existed in one, like it it was, it's yeah, it's uh, it's like, it's like, like unlike anything I've ever, I've ever thought about even, you know, like an art collective, but on such a massive scale. Yeah. Multimedia. Totally. (laughs) And, and also that combination of, um, real avant-garde like like classical experimental music with basically doo-wop like basically like street pop and the idea that these two guys a found one another and b were like this might make sense if if we combine like what lou reed does with what john kale does and it yeah. is just an i i really love the way that haynes told them did the movie though with the the sort of two panels and like having the montages on the left comment on the talking head on the right or or vice versa it was it, it's a movie that really like uh, appreciates with like second viewing, third viewing. Were you already a pretty big Velvet Underground fan? Yeah, like they were like so one of the first bands because like right when I was getting into m- music in a way beyond like I like D- Death Leopard or Aerosmith and stuff like that. Like when I was starting to like read a little bit about music history and it was like really like getting into music criticism too. So like when I first read Lester Bangs and stuff like that in high school. That's right when Peel Slowly and C came out, the box set, uh, the Velvet Underground box set. And usually what would happen back then is like when those boxes would come out, that's when the huge critical reappraisal would would take place. It w- and now it's like more like, hey, it's the five-year anniversary of this song. <laughs> you like, And lo- let's do a real, like it's Arcade Fire's third album. Time to re- like revisit that. But yeah. for this, it was like nobody really in the mainstream press had talked about the Velvet Underground probably for two decades i don't know i mean not in a serious way so that was like a huge like jumping off point for me and also just like to have their entire catalog and kind of sift through it that way was kind of cool i guess i kind of miss box sets is the what we're learning yeah no that's a great point too that it seems like now uh we focus so much especially content as content providers like we focus so much on specifically an anniversary as opposed to really going back and taking an appreciation for like maybe even like deep cuts on a record or things yeah. like that. It's more just like, Hey, wasn't this record great? Let's talk about it. Like uh, on the, on a very surface level sort of situation. Do you do a lot? Like, cause I, I noticed as I kind of like, kind of started to dip my head into like the hardcore scene a little bit more now and listen to you. I listen to Axe to grind and like just checking out like what's happening. It seems like the reunion thing and the five year anniversary, 10 year anniversary of X record has really like hit hardcore in a pretty hard way. Yeah. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I don't go, I don't get too invested to the point where I like let something, you know, disrupt my day. But um, I think that on a positive side, it can help a band that maybe is at an interesting point in their career where their new records aren't doing so well, have a very successful tour. Yeah. So that's a positive. But I think for some bands it cements them as a legacy act yeah. to where it's like, Oh, I really only fuck with that one record. They and get you're frozen like, in amber kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, is it nice to have a very successful tour when you're at a point when you haven't really maybe had those? Like, of course, like, you know, you deserve that. You've probably made a really great record that people obviously really love, but does that hinder your continuing career that's mm-hmm. where it gets kind of interesting you know and and we see that happen with like you know indie rock acts and stuff like that but like 
I think it does start to happen more and more with like punk and hardcore stuff, which is an interesting conversation. Yeah. I mean, I remember one of, still one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life was Mission of Burma getting back together. And I saw them at Irving Plaza and like they just like melted my face. They were so good. And I yeah. I never would have had a chance to see them in any of their early, like their early iteration. And that was just a band that like kind of existed as a myth for me, even though I knew like when I was living in Boston, Peter Prescott was like worked down the street at Mystery Train Records from where the, I was working at Newberry Comics. So I knew that he was in it, but I didn't really think about Mission of Burma as like anything that I would ever be able to experience. It was just like cooler guys who were older got to see this band. Yeah. So to see them and like Lee Ronaldo came out and played um, with them. And, you know, when they played Revolver, like the whole place, just like the roof came off. Like it, it was an amazing experience. But if you would ask me then, like, will the next 20 years just basically be this this played out over and over and over again with every band you could possibly think of? It, I would not have believed you. Yeah. And that's the, you know, again, this is this is not even just punk and hardcore. This is sort of everything now where it's like the days of really feeling like, oh, man, I wish I got to see that band. Are, you can kind of just expect it to happen now. Yeah. Like there's very few holdouts, like very, very few, you know? No, it's like now I'm more of like a, like, cons- I, I feel like I'm more specific about what I want. Like, I'm like, I want them to play this album and then I'll go. <laughs> but like, it's not, not just any reunion. I'm just waiting for like, you know, the 20th anniversary of Futures or whatever. And then I'll see Jimmy World or... Right, yeah. You, yeah. Could, be, you could become much more hyper-focused. It's like, yeah. no, 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 no. If you're going to do that, I need, I need this one very specific thing to happen. I actually you know what? I get to choose the set list. So yes. That's, uh... <laughs> I'm sure we're not that far away from that. Like, basically no. Patreon concerts where, like, you can pick the set list if you pay enough. Oh, we're all, we're joking about it now, but you know it's with... You oh, my know God. I'm sure that, like, there's some dude in, like, Dubai who's like, let me tell you something. My birthday's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh here's here's this here's this festival i'm putting together for myself are there any holdouts that you can immediately think of that are like that's like a uh you know like oh that would check the box of like something i would kill to see i would go see sonic youth the second they decided to play together um but they're one of my favorite live bands and i don't know if that will actually happen uh because it's more about marriage than it is about like whether or not they enjoyed playing together or were sure. making good music but like the, if they were ever like yeah we're, we're gonna get together and play new york or los angeles i'd probably be like i'd be there in a second right i just saw i mean i don't know if it came across your timeline but like there was like kind of a little bit of an operation ivy was there reunion the other day where uh yeah it was like tim and jesse at some like charity benefit i think they like they played sound system together <laughs> and like the whole, you know of course it, but it was like you know that's not ex- it's two of the members it's like but it is exciting to see the two of them sing together but yeah like you yeah know, you can make uh, that like late period steely dan where it was like they moved a bunch of guys out but it was still the the main two were there <laughs> um yeah, so after it's funny after i watched that velvet underground documentary i was like you know you do the thing where you're like well now i have to read about stuff that maybe wasn't mentioned in here yeah i don't even think i realized that they had a that there was a record that had that didn't have any of them it only had the guy doug yes is, that, is, that <laughs> yeah. is, is there a corner of the internet that loves that record i bet there is but i haven't found it yet which is weird because i you think i've found like almost every corner but i haven't found doug Yulnet yet though yeah, they didn't. It's, they didn't even mention in the documentary, which is always like, a, well, <laughs> that 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 goes that 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 makes a little more sense. Um, yeah, so I mean, 
because you are a uh, multifaceted, you're 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 a music writer, you're, um, movies, uh, sports, everything is kind of kind of all together there. Um, well, let's first start with you're from Philly originally, right? Yeah, from Philly, from Philly. Yeah. Did you go from Philly to Boston? I did. So I went to uh, high school in Philly, like kind of um, a Quaker school that was right on the parkway there in the city. And I, I grew up in Fairmount, which is near the art museum. And then I did a year at Temple. And then I went to Emerson after that. And I went up to Boston. Okay. Um, when you were living in Philly, were you, was that like a place where you were starting to go to shows and stuff like that? That when Yeah. You were like, so right when I was finishing high school. So the weird thing, I guess it, it's not, it's not unique, but for me, it was like, I always had a hard time. Like guitar did not come easy to me. It was never like, I could never do more than like rudimentary stuff on guitar. I didn't really know a lot of other musicians. So like making music and playing music was always sort of like just out of reach. And I don't even know if I had the opportunity, how much I would have done anyway, or would have been capable of doing. So my like relationship to music has always really been as like a critic or a journalist or thinking about it and thinking about it historically. And then like, honestly working retail for <laughs> like a solid 10 years and being on that side of it. So when I was in high school, I had like a, um, like an elective journalist, like English journalism class at the end of high school. And I started like writing about records that I really liked. And I had started reading spin, reading magnet, kind of like trying to understand like a little bit like so you would basically like okay green day and then green day leads to this and then you find out what lookout records is and you sort of start to try and put together this map of underground music a little bit and i was really getting into indie rock and stuff like that and then so right around at the end of high school and my first year of college is when i feel like i started going to see like guided by voices and pavement and shows at the trocadero but before i got to boston like my idea of like a DIY music scene was seeing Luna with like a thousand people, <laughs> you know, at the right. truck. That was like what I thought was like, wow, what an intimate experience because it's not you two at the vet, you know, like, right. Right. right and that right. changed when I got to Boston. Well, um, I think I'd read, so was, uh, your father was a, was a music journalist, right? Or he was a, a film writer? critic actually. A fil- yeah. Oh, he was film critic. Yeah. Okay. So he was the film critic for the Inquirer in Philly for like, 17 years or something like 18 years and then he did like some other stuff at the end when the paper started to like consolidate which like kind of happened to all local papers but he did yeah. like theater critic and then he was like just uh, more general writing and then he retired but yeah from for most of my life he was the one of the three film critics at the Inquirer. Do you think that that played any sort of role in your interest in wanting to to write? Yeah definitely I grew up in a house with a lot of books a uh, house with a lot of opinions and while I know that I had phases of like really liking, um, you know, tr- traditional like kids stuff, like, and I definitely spent a lot of time like being like, here's, here's my GI Joe story that I'm setting up in my head. It was pretty <laughs> early that they started being like, here's the Maltese Falcon. Maybe you would like this or here's, um, you know, uh, God, like just like classic movies, you know, like they would just be on, uh, in some capacity. And then he started taking me to movies. And some of them I thought were like incredibly boring when I was 11. Like I remember him taking me to Lawrence of Arabia and I was like, dude, this is, these guys are riding camels for way too long. I gotta go. <laughs> uh, so I think I left it intermission the first time I saw Lawrence of Arabia, but it was a definitely like a blessedly like culturally literate household. It was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Um, 
was there much music in the house? Like, uh, do your parents listen to music? Beatles uh, and stuff like that. Billy yeah. Joel. Like, there was my dad was a big British Invasion guy. He was fr- he's from England. He was from England. Um, but you know, he and he had like a really good stereo system. But he mostly listened to classical. So it was more like I think MTV at that very specific time when like all sorts of bands were starting to get on it as Nirvana happened. That kind of turned me on to you know, seeing Sugar on MTV, finding out that the guy from Sugar had another band and then spending like six years trying to understand who's Gurdu until I was like, oh, they're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it takes a little while when you're a kid. Well, on top of that, because yeah, I mean, every record, uh, especially in the, I mean, no, I I would say throughout the whole thing, every record, it's like, you don't know what you're going to get. You know what I'm saying? Like some are hyper aggressive and some were like, attempting to make hits so it's funny it's like i will i would like to go back to understand like to know exactly what i thought when like there was probably like a two-week period where like i was listening to dookie one day and then tried to listen to zen arcade and you know they're they're like sort of the same thing sure but they're not but they're not (laughs) you know yeah and i'm like yeah you you can't hear what this guy's saying you know like (laughs) and that was like a new thing for me i didn't know that that was like a possibility in music yeah were you uh were you a cassette tape kid yeah yeah Yeah. like a lot of singles and then making mixtapes and stuff like that and like the whole thing that was also happening is that you know the I, I don't do a lot of like rose colored glasses about the nineties stuff. I mean, I do, but like it, the cool thing was, was that there was this explosion of both underground music and rap at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so college radio and a lot of the radio stations, maybe not like the main radio stations in Philly, although they had some pretty good ones like power 99, like, but like Princeton's radio station and Drexel's radio station, which we could get would play like really eclectic, cool stuff, like to introduce you to a bunch of different music at the time. And I, I remember like, Right when I graduated high school, like Penn's Spring Fling concert was like the root Sonic Youth in Parliament, you know? Whoa. And it was like, it was still like an amazing experience to see that. But that was kind of the vibe as I was getting out of high school. It was like you were starting to see some of the clickishness in music melt away a little bit, which I think I also was really curious about because I was right. I was starting to write about it too. Right. You know, that's, uh, I didn't realize it until much later in my life, but being from, the West coast, uh, being from Los Angeles, like growing up, especially in that era, era of the nineties, I'm a few years younger than you, but I, I, you know, I still think very fondly of that era, especially the MTV era. Um, but I didn't realize how much specifically West coast rap was specifically only being played out here as much as it was. It was like a completely like foreign experience to me that's what i've come to realize it's yeah. like for me i'm like oh yeah i mean you couldn't escape tupac and biggie or not biggie sorry uh tupac and like dre and and all of that um but then friends on the east coast are like oh we were just being played biggie and Nas and stuff like that like nonstop. also like on top of that the guys we were listening to on the both coasts were like i mean it was a first of all it was a completely different aesthetic experience totally like now it maybe doesn't feel that way but like you either liked Mob Deep or you liked Dog Pound, but it usually, like for me, it was like very rare that you would find somebody who was like, I like both equally. Right. Um, and I kind of do miss the regionalism. Obviously, there was some like attendant violence that came along with that that sucked. But like, I was like, this is kind of cool that like, there's nothing that sounds like something that was made in D&D studios in New York. You know what I mean? Like that there is a sound of New York. There was like a little bit of a Philly sound. There was definitely an LA sound. And then 
unbeknownst to me and there was like other rap music happening elsewhere in the country yeah. i just didn't really know about it no totally that that, that was uh, those kind of learning things are are really fun when you start to really make friends in different parts of the country as you yeah. get older where you're like oh my god we had a separate experience and i wouldn't <laughs> have even known that considering you know because you sort of think like oh if it's on the radio then everybody knows sure. about this you sure. know yeah um, i mean did you feel that way was that the case for hardcore too or for punk as you were getting into it did you feel like there was a very west coast experience for you um you know, I, again, I haven't thought too much about it, but there definitely has to have been because on the West, like, so we have, you know, you, you live out here now, so you're familiar with what K-Rock is. Yeah. So K-Rock in the nineties. And I mean, even still now, which is kind of interesting, like so much bad religion. Right. right. And I can't imagine bad religion was being played as, you know, only on, when they had like a hit, right. Like, only when they had like a buzz bin track, you know, <laughs> like totally, but just funny though. So like, I don't know what kind of deal <laughs> bad religion still has with K-Rock. Whereas like K-Rock, as we know now, basically just plays Billie Eilish. It's like not yeah. the same station anymore. But like, I feel whenever bad religion has a single, they'll still randomly play the new bad religion single. I'm like, what do you have on K-Rock? <laughs> They're like, still, they have like, like equity in K-Rock. You yeah. Gotta, yeah. It's, they must, they must. It's, it's fascinating. But yeah, I mean like between bad religion, uh, Pennywise, stuff like that was like on the fringe of mainstream um when i was a kid you know and yeah. i don't think that people in you know florida were getting that stuff you know they weren't getting like no effects records or whatever yeah right and like i you know again no effects for me is a band that i'm like oh if you lived on if you lived in on the west coast at all and had any sort of interest in punk i feel like you were just kind of handed punk and drub like at some point in your life where you're of like course, yeah. this is this is a part of your 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 entire discography of life now but um again i have you know so many like uh we put our records on uh death wish inc which is out of boston and like yeah. getting to know those guys and they're like no dog we never had a fucking no effects face <laughs> i can attest to that but the thing that's funny about boston was that when i got to boston i was like a bunch of stuff happened but i realized that local scenes are just like their own ecosystem yeah. And that like I remember the first time uh I saw karate and dudes were acting like the who was about to take the stage. <laughs> and I was like, bro, what is karate? Like what why is they why are they headlining? Like why are there like there's 250 people losing their mind. They know every word. And karate is not like a sing-along band. Like karate no. is like a pretty like noodly, like post-discord band. Yeah. And dudes were just like, no, like the same way like karate can be like the one of the biggest bands in Boston. And it was it went all the way up to like Buffalo Tom, where it was like Buffalo Tom, who were like awesome dudes, and I really like some Buffalo Tom records. Those guys like could live off of playing the Paradise like six times a year, and like and like they were so big in that area that it kind of didn't matter if they only ever had like one or two hits, quote unquote. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so, what was? What was, do you remember as a kid, like what the first thing that you connected with musically was? Like, do you, can you, can you remember like the first thing that felt like it was yours where you're like, oh man, like, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this because I've had to talk a lot about like through podcast stuff, like my musical past, but also like, you know, like when we do big picture, we will do like these drafts from years. Like, yeah. And also I'll try to put myself back in that place. I always, I was always really interested in melody, like, contrasted with something that wasn't supposed to be melodic so like 
Def Leppard and Aerosmith, like they're really poppy records. I always knew that like, well, this dude, these dudes have long hair and they look like they shred, but these songs are really, really beautiful. You know, mm. like they, they, and so they, I remember being like really obsessed as a kid with like singles of like super poppy hair metal songs, like Angel by Aerosmith or like uh, Hysteria by Def Leppard and just like playing those over and over again and just be kind of like, really really into like how poppy they were uh-huh. Even, but not but i also but I, but I wouldn't be really into pop it would be like it wasn't like i would also listen to like radio pop in that way it was something about the idea that like this was a band that had made a choice to sound this way yeah oh that's interesting so, so those were like the first ones that i kind of remember like wearing out like as like my mom would let me buy like this song and i just played it on my walkman until it got slow um I don't know that I'm familiar with those specific songs you just named from those artists. Are are those more like ballady or are they actually Angel's like, like a superpower ballad and then yeah, okay. Hysteria sounds like Heroes by Bowie. It's just kind of like okay. a very like almost new wave like 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 mid-tempo song. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I know the I know plenty of the other hits from those two artists. Yeah. But I was like, I don't know that I can reference <laughs> though that one specifically. Um Def Leppard's pour some sugar on me though, right? Yes. Oh yeah. hell yeah, it is. Yeah. The one arm drummer with like <laughs> yeah. 17 toms. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, did uh do you remember what, what was your first concert? Um, I think it was Joshua Tree. And I think oh, I went wow. with like like my parents took me to Joshua Tree, if I remember correctly. Like they there are also like a lot of shows down on the parkway where I used to live, like in Philly, where like the Beach Boys would play on July 4th and stuff like that and do like Kokomo and, and everything, that era of like reconstructed Beach Boys. But <laughs> the first concert and the first band that I was like, I love this band. I know the four dudes in this band. And this record is really big for me is, is Joshua Tree. Wow. Wow. That had to have been a massive concert. Dude, they were, they're like, it's really cool to see. Like if you find a band that can really play a stadium, like yeah. really, really like, and I, I don't remember a lot about it, but I, I know that I, like I went, I, I've watched like concert films from that era and like right after. And it, they, they were a really, really special band in a lot of ways. Like them and REM were really like the, they, they 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 like really changed a lot. Did you come across that article with Bono recently where he was just like shitting on his entire discography? Did you catch that? <laughs> I didn't. Like, yeah, he basically was like, "Yeah, we have a couple songs I think are pretty good, but the rest is all I'm pretty embarrassed by most of it." Just like <laughs> like the later <laughs> stuff or even like the early stuff. He's early stuff. Yeah, I think he's. He, uh, I forget which record he thinks is like the good one. Which is crazy to think about. Like, he's, he's got like, like four masterpieces. That's, that's crazy. It's like, I forget which. Oh man, which one did you say was good? Maybe oh, it's like boy, maybe or something. I forget. I forget which one he said. But that I would just, be so sick if Bono's like, I like early stuff. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> the rest pass. Pass. Um, and uh, you know, so the first thing I thought about when you mentioned that tour was, and, and you just mentioned you have like you know a little bit of foggy memories of it, but. My thought was, who opens for the U2 Joshua Tree tour? Like, Dude, I who- think I I thought, I think I might be like creating this in my mind because it sounds yeah. cooler, but I thought Echo and the Bunnymen did do a tour with them. I just don't know if it was that tour. And it was like, I have no, 
no idea if we went for the opener or if right. it was like, no, you two will be going on at 730 promptly. This is yeah. a union town. We got to be done. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, it's funny. I've continued to have this this uh, this thing that I argue and I try to push, but I know it will never work with uh, with Touche stuff where I'm like, can we just do a tour where there's no openers, shows 10 bucks. It's just seven. you. We play at eight. Everyone's home by nine thirty. Isn't that what everybody wants at this yeah. point? But I like, still, nah. I remember when I started like feeling like maybe I was aging out of going to like two shows a week, which is probably like where I was at like my peak. Yeah, was just when I was like, there is no other proposition in culture where you have to wait this much. <laughs> There's nothing. TV is not like you know lost isn't going to start for another 45 minutes <laughs> yeah. you know you know like they're not like we said it was this movie was coming out memorial day it's actually going to be like next week my bad guys like it's but bands will just be like let them wait right yeah yeah <laughs> and uh well i think the the version of that now is going to a seat going to see a movie at amc where it's like you yes. want 25 minutes of previews yeah <laughs> strap in buddy that's right <laughs> that's right no i missed the arc light where you could like time it exactly it was like three trailers we're starting you know yeah but i you know the unfortunate thing now is that like because you know you can expect 25 minutes of previews and you continue just have to see the same previews yes. constantly yeah. now it's like i'm the scumbag where it's like all right shows at 8 30 you know movie starts at 8 30 let's just leave at 8 30 we'll yeah get, there we'll get in there fine. at 905 for the last ryan reynolds trailer <sighs> and, then, and then the movie starts <laughs> my uh my buddy that i go to movies with all the time for us it's just like all right let's go watch the morbius trailer again <laughs> again because they keep pushing that fucking movie back yeah to keep watching this thing over and over and over it's funny uh, it's like i because i i haven't obviously gone to the movies as much as i used to this yeah. last couple of years but like i went and saw scream in la Kenyatta, and i was like damn i cannot wait to watch this movie i'm just so excited and then it just it really tests you when they're on the fourth, like, make sure you got get a regal credit card on your way out the door. And I'm just like, bro, just show me the killings. Like, let's go. Like, <laughs> I have my mask on. Like, let's rock. Come on. Oh, yeah. It's it gets tough. And now, like, I don't know if you've been to AMC much, but like the there's like a very meme worthy Nicole Kidman ad. Oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah. She's just like the movies now or never. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> She's just playing uh, just like uh like accent roulette throughout the whole thing yeah like, and meanwhile she's like they're like she's like the biggest star in streaming tv it's like <laughs> Nicole, <laughs> come on. today's episode is brought to you by anchorfish printing hey are you thinking about starting up that band label or distro or maybe you already have one and you need some merch anchorfish printing has been taking care of bands for over 15 years i can speak from personal experience when touche amori started Michael at Anchorfish was our guy for shirts, hoodies, patches, back patches, anything uh, that, you know, you could put ink on material for he can take care of. Check out their uh, Instagram over at Anchorfish underscore printing right now and mention the first ever podcast and receive 10% off your order. Hit them up for shirts, hats, stickers, anything you can really think of and be on your way. Um, you mentioned, uh, reading music magazines early on, um, when you were doing that, was that, was that like, okay, like you're starting to kind of get the structure of what works and like you finding, you mentioned Lester Bangs, like, did you immediately have, uh, writers that you were like, oh, I gotta read everything this person does. Yeah. I mean, like there was the, 
it's like Charles Aaron was a really big person for me. He wrote for spin and he used to do the singles column for a while and spin in the back of the review section. And the singles column would essentially be this really eclectic mix of like a rap punk, a metal record. Like he would just bring all of it in, but he would talk about it all in the same voice so that you could conceive of that stuff being enjoyed by the same person, you know? Um, so Charles was a big one. I loved, um, uh, Ego Trip Magazine, which was this rap magazine uh, that's kind of like a precursor to Mass Appeal and XXL and Elliot Wilson and Sasha Jenkins and and like a bunch of guys used to write for that. And they would have like really irreverent stuff in there, like interview, like they would have rappers interviewed by Count Chocula. Um, so one of them would pretend to be Count Chocula and talking to Fat Joe and Fat Joe would just be like, this is crazy. But like they would be going along. It was like early pre-internet viral stuff. But it's like yeah. really, really like I was like, oh, you can do this. That's cool. Like like I didn't know. Like it really was a playground in that sense. So yeah, spin was probably a big thing. And then once I started kind of getting into, you know, more indie rock and alternative music, like reading Magnet and Alternative Press and and some of that stuff. And then by the time I got to Boston, that's when I sort of started to discover zines and stuff like that did you ever do any zines yourself i didn't personally but like i got my start writing for them so i i got like the first person the first place i was ever published was this zine called hit it or quit it uh which this which jessica hopper used to do out of chicago and i think that i just cold emailed her with like a hotmail account or something like i was just like here's a letter but it's also like my my review of like i don't know it was like an at the drive-in record or an outcast record or something like i just like wrote my thoughts and uh she published it so that, those were like my first experiences were working with jessica and that was really really awesome i, I really like those those issues were so so incredible to hold in your hand because like there was just you know that cut and paste aesthetic of the zines in that era but it was also like a really diverse selection of music being covered and exposed me to a lot of stuff. And then I did a little bit of stuff for Punk Planet when I was in Boston. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Do you remember uh, the first review that you ever wrote, just like kind of even for yourself, where you're like... Yeah, I wrote yeah. about Pavement's Wowie Zowie in my oh, English wow. class. Yeah, and it was like an essay about like whether or not they like were letting people down by not going pop. Because that was like this big thing for Pavement was that they we're going to be REM and like everybody was like, this could be like this next big band. And then they made like a double album of like really weird sketches of like 18 other bands. And, uh, I, I really love that record, but like at the time I was like, I need to really seriously think about what they're throwing away by not making automatic for the people or something, you know, like, and I, so it was, it was, but that was like very much of the time where I feel like a lot of like the discourse around bands was like, are you going for it or are you like keeping it where you are and like kind of like staying in the scene that you're in or are you signing to a major label? And then when you sign to a major label, like get like Butch Vig to do your snare drum so that you get played on the radio and everything. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's very quaint to think about now. That was like a big concern back then. Yeah. Uh, this might be jumping ahead uh, just a little bit, but I know you ended up being a, a writer at stat or sorry, at uh at spin. Yeah. So, like just contributing, but like, yeah, yeah. Was that uh, while you were in Boston? No, I moved. So basically I was in Boston and I was writing for zines working at Newberry comics Worked a little bit at the Middle East, and I was just like around music a lot. And then my buddy Andy, who I still do the Watch podcast with today, was moving to New York 
and initially he was like either going to work like he had had two internships like the summer before it was like i think he had an internship at matador and an internship at spin and uh he got a job at spin running or editing their their website which at the time was like this is like 99 2000 so it was still very like nascent and like what is this website what's its relationship to the magazine but like he got me a job i can't remember it was it wasn't like a ton of money but it was like i moved to new york on the, like the sort of promise of this job and for like a year or so we were like kind of doing our own separate editorial operation outside of spin so like spin would have their thing and then we would be like we're just going to write about party of helicopters and mogwai and you know like spoon and the bands that we love and then after a while i think it was just kind of like what what are we doing here <laughs> like why why are you guys doing an editorial operation that is not exactly mirroring what the magazine says necessarily and uh like right around the dot-com crash um like they basically like started to like let go of people so i was working at kim's in new york and i was like the rap buyer at kim's and also like working like bought indie rock stuff and i just sat at the back of kim's on st mark's yeah and got exposed to a ton of music that way but that's when i started writing for like the voice and spin and it was a really cool setup like i would work at kim's and i would get an assignment to like review a cameron album or a fugazi album or something or i would pitch the voice on something and you could just kind of sit in the back and like tool away on a review but then like also like put stickers on like 40 cds and take them out like it was a pretty right. sweet setup yeah the best I, I still say i mean i'm so thankful for the life i've been able to have making music and stuff like that but i worked at a record store i started the saturday after i graduated high school mm -hmm. and was there for like four years making laughable money like yeah laughable money um but it was like it was it exposed me to so much music i definitely would not have found on my own if if it wasn't for my coworkers who all listen to different things when it was their turn to play a record they would play something and you know you realize how uh how specific your own music taste is until you work at a record store because then you're oh like, yeah oh okay i actually do like this or or you have the coworker that only plays one or two different records <laughs> and you <laughs> learn to hate those records with a passion or that band with a passion and it's like not that band's fault <laughs> Like, oh not uh, at all yeah like i still have like a little bit of like residual resentment for the melvins because i had a coworker in newberry comics this dude josh who i loved but like yeah he would sometimes just play like an 89 minute melvin cd just to clear out the store but i was like but we're still here <laughs> you know? i was like you know and you played this last night too you know like it's like this is brutal what was the store you worked at like uh, it was, what was it like or where, what, what was it? Yeah. Like, was it a smaller like vinyl place? Was it, was it, it like was, a chain? It wasn't a chain. It's in Burbank. Um, it was a store called Backside and okay. it was, it started in the nineties. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, it was like a, a CD and, and it did have a, like a separate room for vinyl, but then around the mid two thousands when streetwear started to really pop off, they realized like well, we're fighting downloading. CDs aren't selling. What do we do to stay alive? So it yeah. started to become sort of like a skate and streetwear shop. And around that time, which was, I think, like 2005, I was like, 
yeah, I didn't, I didn't start working here to fold t-shirts, like no offense. Size vans for guys. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, this isn't why I'm here. So then I left and I, and because I'm from Burbank was like, well, my folks are and my brother, they're all in post-production. I guess I should get like a, a small, like a job at a post-production house, which is where I went, uh, for like a little while. And then ended up going to like a tape film and media distribution company. And that was the last real job that I had before I was like, yeah, I'm just going to just going to do music. I'm just going to figure out, you know, just just hustling to make music work. (laughs) But, um, yeah, working at that record store, that was so exactly what we're talking about for me. And I know this is like, people will get upset when they hear this. I cannot listen to Depeche Mode. Depeche Mode for me. <laughs> I had this coworker who like only played Depeche Mode. He was difficult to be around. He would like, I would be like in the middle of ringing up a customer and he would like air keyboard. Oh my in, God. Into me. <laughs> like, I was like, I'm sorry. I just, I cannot listen to Depeche Mode because of that. But you know, these That's things amazing. happen. <laughs> yeah, I had so many moments where I found stuff at the record stores I've worked at because a, a person put it on or because I met someone cool who was like, oh, by the way, like you would like this. There was just also like so many hours of listening to like trance music on a Saturday where I was like, I just feel like I wish I was vaporized right now. Like, <laughs> yes. um, we also at Newberry, did you ever, did you ever go to Newberry Comics in oh, Boston? Totally. Yeah. But I might, I think. I think the first time I went to Newberry, which would have been probably in like 2009 or 2010 yeah. on like our first West, our first East, uh, sorry, East Coast tours. Like, I think that was probably the last era of it still feeling like a full on record store. Sure. Whereas like now it feels more like a Spencer's Gifts with like. Even a, when I was there in like 97 or 98, they was, started like bringing in South Park memorabilia. Yeah to like uh, to like basically the same thing with the streetwear it's like we yeah. have to like make our margin somewhere and i was totally. like man i can't believe i'm selling stuff poops to, to kids <laughs> like to bu kids all the time uh but they had an amazing vinyl section yeah and that was how like i basically started to get familiar with not only like the the music journalism like the like the zine culture but also just being like oh okay so like Gravity Records puts these records out and 31 G 31G puts these out and you know uh Ebullition puts these out and that's how like I just started like and we would just play those records as much as like we wanted at the store well I mean not when it was crowded but we would play, play them when we when we could and that's how I kind of got, got familiar with that uh, and then on the other side there was also like a lot of dudes who worked at that store or worked at the warehouse and would do deliveries to the store and it would be like oh this dudes in Caven, like like i guess i'll go see Caven because like this guy is in it or or whatever and that was kind of like the 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 way i got got into that scene a little bit oh wow man i wonder i'll bet you probably worked with a co-worker that was in a band that i'm I'm wondering how small the circle gets between you and i with certain people oh i'm sure yeah i mean like all the the hydra head guys like so i lived in mission hill like 97 98 something like that. We lived in a little house that I had, I had first started going sh- to shows there. That was like the first basement shows I ever went to. And then I wound up living there and like around the corner, I think was the Hydra head house. So like there were do like a lot of the Boston bands were kind of all in, you know, one of three neighborhoods. They all had one of five jobs, like at the burrito place, the other side cafe, Newberry, you know, one of middle East, like there was all these like places that you could 
keep a job, but also tour if you wanted to yeah. for a couple of weeks. And that, so you just kind of got to know people through that. Sure. Oh man. Uh, so that would have been obviously Aaron, but like Mark Thompson. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Trip. That's a trip. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know that when it was, was your relationship with, uh, Chuck Klosterman started from working with, uh, working with him at spin. Yeah. Uh, I, so I kind of moved down to New York in 2000 by 2001, like honestly, like right after nine 11, I got another record store job because like everything was kind of like up in, in flux in New York. So I started working at Kim's, but I would hang out with guys who were working at spin and that's right when I met Chuck. So it was okay. like Chuck and John Dolan and Alex Papadimus, like a bunch of this like really cool group of writers. And that's actually where I, I met the woman who would become my wife. And like we would go out after work and get get drinks and like hang out and listen to jukebox and just talk music like all night. And so that was really where I kind of met other music writers for the first time was in New York. Got it. Um, there's something I find really interesting between you and <clears throat> some of the other people on the ringer and stuff like that, which is that you're all also big sports fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, uh, I, I feel like that's a, a, what, did you find that to be an increasingly exciting, uh, circle to make where you're like, wait a minute, we're allowed to also like sports together too. <laughs> Cause for, yeah. I mean, you, you sort of start to feel like never the two shall meet. A lot. You oh know, my like god! A, yeah, in Boston, yeah. it was like it, I remember in Boston when, like, a couple of my friends were Red Sox fans, and I was like, I, I'm more of a Philly sports fan, but like, yeah, it, it was one of those things. Like, I have these huge blank spots in sports or TV where I was like, yeah, man, I didn't watch TV for like three years, you know, because I was I was really like just all I cared about was music, or I didn't watch sports for a couple of years because all I cared about was music. Yeah. So when I got back to down to New York, that's when I started getting back into it. Plus. Allen Iverson started playing for the Sixers and I was like, he was just, you know, my favorite athlete and just became obsessed with him. So that was like really my like entree back into it, but it was pretty cool. Like that definitely culminated with like Grantland and, and going, moving out here and having a bunch of people who were ostensibly sports writers, but all were very clear about like their cultural tastes as well. Right. And, and Grantland was like, uh, the culmination of all of that stuff, right? Where yeah. you were, you, that was like the first time you were getting to write about sports and music and movies and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I was like doing, so basically throughout the 2000, the first decade of the 2000s, I would write for magazines and alt weeklies. And then on the side, this was right around when like Blogspot was sort of starting to happen. So people would just like have the, these blogs where they would just put their other writings. And I had one that was about basketball that I wrote under a, a pseudonym actually. Like I just would like, cause I didn't think anybody would ever read it. It was just like for fun. It was just for me and my friends. Yeah. Um, and then I started doing another one uh, a little bit later after that, uh, that were, was called Gabe said we're into movements and it it's, it's all emails to Jay-Z around the time of the black album coming out. Um, I was personally going through like a little bit of a, like a tough time, but it was like very therapeutic to like write these like weird missives to him. And then it like kind of mutates into something else as it goes on. But I, the whole time that I was writing about music for magazines, I was also like writing for fun. So I would write about basketball or I'd write about soccer if I could or whatever. And that wound up being the right choice, I guess, because like, it, it's certainly like when like I met, bill through chuck it was like i had only written about sports like five times in public like published 
but I had been writing about basketball for a long time. So it was like, I, I couldn't believe I had finally found someone who was like, that sounds cool. Yeah. You should come work for me. You know, like, <laughs> cause right. usually you wouldn't get in through the door if you were like, I've never done, I've never been a beat reporter for a team. I didn't write about sports in high school. I didn't write about sports in college. I don't work for like an Albany newspaper covering minor league baseball. Like it was a very unconventional uh, career path. Oh man. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was also just the most exciting thing in the entire world to get into be like, I could literally just, whatever excites me right now, I can kind of pitch an article about this. Yeah. I mean, there was always like this, I, there's a lot of stuff on Grantland where I'm like, I just, there's no way that I should be able to do this. Like there's no way that ESPN should be paying us to, to do this work. Yeah. Uh, but I think it resonated with some people, like I think a small group of people, but I think like people liked it and it wound up kind of becoming the model for what we do at the ringer where it's like, you think about culture somewhat in sports terms and you try to think about sports in cultural terms. What was the first podcast that you ended up doing? Cause that, what year did like that start to become really a thing for, for you? Um, I did. So the, the we just did had our 10 year anniversary where me and Andy were, so Andy was the TV critic at Grantland and I was like one of the sports editors, but people knew we were friends and they were just starting to do podcasts around like other podcasts besides Bill's pod. And, uh, this is funny. Like they, the, this guy, David Jacoby, who's a sweetheart. He's currently, you can see him on ESPN. He has his show with Jalen Rose. He was the sort of head of audio and visual at the video at the, at Grantland. And he was like, you guys should try a pod. I'm not saying we're going to do it. But like, let's just get you guys in a studio. So he booked us um, a studio at the Brill Building, like in Midtown Manhattan, which is like, now that we know what you what it, you need to podcast, going to the Brill Building seems a little extreme. And uh, and we just sat in a studio, literally like on stools facing one another and talked about like Downton Abbey and Homeland for 45 minutes. And then we just kept doing it. And then it became its own feed and we started doing it twice a week and then when we moved to the ringer we started it up again as the watch and now we've been doing it for so we just passed our like 10 year anniversary of doing the pod together so we've been doing it since 2012 wow that's incredible yeah that's incredible was it always once a week or it was we would do mondays because like that was back when like sundays were like where all the good shows were and and then so we would basically come on on monday and be like last night on breaking bad or last night on on you know game of thrones or whatever and then that just kind of really really grew it grew into like doing it twice a week and then game of thrones became so big that we they started doing other game of thrones shows out of that and yeah. uh yeah it just became like its own little cottage industry with the watch now i'm curious um i admit that i get overwhelmed with tv because there's so just, do so do i <laughs> so, yeah i mean so so for for the watch are you at this point following, are you doing like, oh, this week on this show, this thing happened? Or are you like, these are some great um, like first episodes of these shows that I'm now excited about. Maybe I'll dip into this. Like, wh- like how do you try it's to- It's a mix of both. So like, yeah. I think we cheat a little bit and start, you know, like most podcasts, like where we'll just kind of like cherry pick news. So just to kind of like, do it's partially throat clearing but it's also like if you haven't watched these shows there's still something to listen to on this podcast cuz we're talking about the fact that you know HBO Max is going to put the movies out on the same day on streaming and what does that mean for movie theaters and what does that mean for the movie business and we'll just do some like kind of stuff that you might read in Deadline or Vulture or like the Hollywood Reporter and then we usually have 
a show that we're really into. So like sometimes it'll just be like, hey, we gave it a shot. It was cool or we loved it or it was okay, but here's some issues with it. And if we love it, usually we'll do every episode of it. So certain shows become like succession and we just talk about succession for the entire time it's on in a season. And some shows were like, that was dope. Like maybe we'll hit it at the end of the season. Sometimes like, honestly, like I'll watch ahead of Andy and Andy won't like do it or Andy will watch ahead of me and I won't do it. And we'll kind of be like, Oh, you fucked up. You should have kept watching Yellowstone. Like it was crazy this week, but for the most part, like we usually go deep on stuff that we agree on and agree to watch every week. And then we just try to dabble. But even now, like there's a bunch of shows on. Mm -hmm. And then like, I look at like the screeners of stuff that's coming out and it's like a full-time job just to like watch all this stuff. It's like straight up. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, and it's like, sometimes it's, sometimes you can, it can get a little bit like, you can get a little like, like punch drunk from it. Cause you're like, Oh man, like this is cool. But is it 10 hours? Cool. Is it, I'm going to like have something to say about every episode. Cool. And sometimes you're just like, Oh, it's a pl-. like when station 11 came out, it was like, this is just a pleasure to talk about. Like when t- something is this cool, like this artistically made and this thoughtful and is so relevant. It just feels like it's, it's easy to talk about that. But sometimes with like stuff where you're like, yeah, I don't know if I have a ton to say about like the two different Elizabeth Holmes docudramas coming out you know what i mean <laughs> like yeah um it gets a little tough do uh do you have any are there any shows off the top of your head that you're bummed like didn't get the the love they deserved and like maybe only lasted a season or two yeah but like part of it is like i'm aware that i'm a little demented so there was like <laughs> a show on amazon prime last year called uh i think it no 2020 i think it was uh, called zero zero zero, which is about the international cocaine trade, and okay. it's told in like three different like with three different characters. It's basically the courier, uh, the person who's like in charge of like being the middleman between the drug producer and the drug buyer. And so Andrea Riseborough was this woman who had basically inherited a shipping fleet that transported cocaine around the co- the world. And then there is a Mexican soldier who has taken over a cartel and uh a neapolitan like mafia that is distributing cocaine throughout europe and mogwai did the soundtrack and and it's the dude who directed the second sicario movie directed a couple of episodes and it's just like an incredible international crime show that i don't think a lot of people saw i i'm mad that i didn't even know about this movie or the soundtrack is unbelievable it's Damn. so good those Did guys get... are so good at scores like it's 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 unfair hats off to any post-rock band that <laughs> that in the in like the mid-2000s realized like oh we can have a total side hustle now yes holy shit yeah um yeah i uh i i'm so happy for all all like explosions in the sky oh are yeah you kidding me with how much those guys are probably raking it in still for like <laughs> just every time friday, friday night, night lights, lights. Yeah. comes on they're just like yeah, yeah exactly also the amount of like um you know dudes that make weird creepy electronic music that yeah. are like they're like oh horror like there's a like we're getting a john carpenter style of you know horror soundtrack now like this will be my life for yeah isn't for the guy who does chromatics just like have like a whole second life where he just does soundtracks for like nicholas wedding reffin movies and stuff like that like johnny johnny jewel or whatever right well i know there's also cliff martinez who's done oh, yeah. a ton of a ton of his stuff um man it's funny i went uh, do, speaking of the watch and, and tv shows let me ask you this 
did you watch or how far did you make it into a uh, too old to die young i watched the whole thing i did too i, I watched did you the whole like thing. did you I like thought it? it was incredible i don't Thank think there will you. ever be anything like it again or before like it's the closest thing to the craziest parts of twin peaks that's ever existed i'm so happy we're having dude twin how many times were you watching you're like i cannot believe they made this especially episodes probably like four through six where i was like i when i was trying to convince people to watch it who refused because i was like yeah each episode's about two hours long um most of it is miles teller spitting (laughs) yes we're like but i was like there is no taboo left unturned in this show it is it is like and amazon abandoned it it was like they put it up. There was no ads. You couldn't find it like on the homepage or like yeah. anything. Like it was just like, get this toxic, like disgusting neon tumor out of our <laughs> development process. And it's, it's, I don't even know if like the people who made it are proud of it. Like it could not have been recut or reshot. Like it was like obviously what he wanted to do, but it is so awesome. It's so dense, but so like, it's an experience. Like it, I wouldn't think that that was a show that I was like, I think I'm going to just keep watching. Like yeah. I, I remember one weekend, I, th- I think I watched it in like four days, which is crazy. You must've been pretty weird when you came out from like, yeah. the other side of that. <laughs> my, my, my girl definitely walked in the room once or twice. And was just like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Um, what's what what's sick is uh, I early on in this podcast, I interviewed, uh, this woman, Hallie Gross, mm-hmm. who was one of the writers on it. And oh she, she also wrote, uh, she was one of the co-writers on the video game, uh, The Last of Us 2. No way, really? Yeah. And uh, she she worked on a show called, her first show writing was on a Showtime show. I never watched it. You might be familiar, called Banshee. Oh, yeah. Banshee's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. She, so she started on that. So she was originally like a, an actor and like did a bunch of stage stuff and then was in a couple episodes of, of, uh, of like uh, broad city and things like that. And then just had the epiphany of like, I think I like writing violence. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, so there's I mean, a huge I, market for that. Yeah. yeah. I, and like, it was one of those, I think when I started the podcast, I had just finished playing the last of us too. And I'm not even a big video game guy, but that game is incredible. Yeah. And uh, so I, was, I read into, you know, like her career and, and, uh, one of the coolest things that I think I've I've really had with doing this pod in, in general is like the small worldness of certain things where she ended up when I contacted her, she hit me back really politely and also being like, oh, my cousin is a huge Touche fan. Oh, no way. Really? Where I was just like my world was just like, oh, my God, this is so cool and like so flattering. So having her on was such a treat. And then uh, what I was also going to say is they had a signing at Amoeba where it was uh, Nicholas Winding Refn or Winding Re- Is it Winding or Winding? I, I think it's Winding, but I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I was fucking up. Uh, between him, Cliff Martinez, and then the other writer on the show who everyone in the line was like most fascinated by. And I, I was like, what's this guy's deal? Then I read into him later. I was like, oh, he like wrote like this, like uh, the Winter Soldier. Yes. Like huge Marvel <laughs> guy. And yeah. I was like... <laughs> Oh. it's ed brubaker right is that yes. who that is? yeah yes yeah. so for me oh i was God. just like yeah i guess you could sign my record too that'd be cool <laughs> i once saw nicholas winning Ruffin at fat dragon like just eating noodles wearing wearing toms and just being like washed as fuck and i was like this is amazing this guy is such a king i don't know what he's doing next it's been a, it's been a minute since he's had anything out 
Uh, I mean, I'm sure you're like me where like every so often I'll just think of a writer or a director and I'll be like, I should probably just look at what's on his upcoming IMDb, yeah. even though half of those things get canceled. Never happened. Never... Yeah. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that has been on there for years is I don't know whether he's directing it or like producing it, but he's a part of a maniac cop uh <laughs> like uh you know revamp i guess Great. which i'm like i could see it sure that movie's psychotic <laughs> <laughs> um and now the, the last thing i want to i wanted to ask you about just because so again this is such a pleasure to talk to you you've been in you know my ears especially these last couple of years with the shutdown and all this sort of stuff um my uh me being such a big movie fan uh the rewatchables came into my life and became such a, a thing, like a joy to listen to on tour. Oh man, or, thank you so much. Or uh, on a long flight or something like that. Cause I can't sleep on flights. I don't know. Can you sleep on flights? Uh, I can knock out for like 25, 45 minutes, but I can't do like the, th- when people are like, I'm going to wake up when we land. I'm like, fuck, I can't do that. Must be yeah. Nice. yeah. Um, so like, I'll, I'll even like, yeah, for like a long, like if we were flying overseas or something like that, it'd be like, okay, I'll watch two movies, do an episode of the rewatchables, watch another movie, you know, and like by the time this, whatever. Um, anyway, so, uh, with the rewatchables, um, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask was like building up the different segments and things like that. Yeah. Like how much pre-planning went into that show before it actually came together? It was like, so you mean like on any given episode or just like the whole podcast? I mean, even, even when it was first starting, because, uh, it feels like it, even though new categories have come along sure. the way, you know, like obviously the first heat episode, um, you didn't have as many of no. the categories as you did. That's why the reheat worked really well <laughs> um, and things like that. But like when you're planning a new podcast, do you go into it um, pretty fleshed out, like with what you're trying to accomplish? So when we first started it, it was the first one I think we did. I may be misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure that the first one we did was Bill on one of his like shows was just like, I love heat. Chris loves heat. We're just going to talk about heat. And that was like the first, like kind of rewatchables, but in, not in name. And then there were a bunch of sports movies where I think Bill called them like sports movie hall of fame or something. But those were basically the bones for the rewatchables where we start like, you know, talking about Moneyball. maybe Moneyball was a rewatchable, but anyway, we started talking about like a bunch of these sports movies that he loved and I loved. And then it kind of like, evolved to the point where we were calling it the rewatchables, but there were no categories. So there's a bunch that we did in the beginning that didn't have, like we just redid the departed because we didn't have, um, we didn't have categories. All those categories are built. Like, I think that there are a couple that like I get nominal credit for like Dion waiters award and stuff like that. And all of the overacting stuff. But for the most part, that's like Bill's genius is his ability to just be like, here's this thing that we can do. And the thing is like, so funny is we'll do, be doing them. And it's like the category meanings change all the time. <laughs> right. Rewatchable scene and what age the best is kind of the same thing. Uh, like there, there's just like always like a weird lull in the middle where like we get tired and skip to, and then realize we didn't do best quote, but doesn't matter. Cause we already quoted a bunch of it. Right. I have basically like a Google doc that usually has, a couple of notes about like a point I want to make in the beginning. And then I have my nominees for, for stuff, but more often than not, when we're doing the pod, like it just kind of goes wherever it goes. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I was going to ask like, even for, if there's someone listening who 
has kind of like a vague idea about like a podcast they want to start. Like, do you have any sort of uh, advice you like to give people? Can I, I mean, this might not be like the most commercially viable, but I would say do it with your friends. Because the thing that I love most about listening to podcasts and like I could name 50 of them right now is like when you can tell the people who are on the pod are like sincerely like in each other's lives and have that kind of shorthand with one another that might be a little bit like, you know, cutting at times or might be like really loving at times, but is ultimately like very familiar. I like tons of podcasts, but like you can tell when there's a pod and it's like kind of a little bit more in the NPR lane of like, well, we're going to discuss this this thing today. And uh, that's, that's very exciting. And to join us is this person who I haven't met, who's calling in for four minutes. And like, there's a ton of utility and those are really cool pods in a lot of ways. But like my favorite kind of pods are where, you're just listening to people like talk about what they would normally talk about with some structure. So I would say if you were thinking about starting one, like think about the podcast that you would actually want to listen to and do it with people that you actually like talking to. Yeah. It's great advice. That's yeah, absolutely great advice. <laughs> uh, well, shit, man, I'll hit you with the last question. I like to, la- I like to ask everybody. And I, you know, I feel like I could, just probably ramble and pick your brain about tons of stuff. I was but. I was way more prepared to be like, and then I saw Locust at Garment District, well, and that okay, was well, when I. <laughs> yeah, okay, so I was well, like trying to like go back in time and find like show flyers that I think I might have gone to. Like, I feel like I really got off easy on this. Podcast. Oh man, well, okay, well then here before I ask you the last question, what 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 were uh, when you were living in Boston? You mentioned you worked working at the Middle East. Were you? Were you like a door guy? What were you doing? I did door and I did bar back a little bit. And then my roommate, Steve, was one of the bookers there. So like I okay. was there two or three nights a week. It was like kind of like if, if all else fails, just go to the Middle East and go see yeah. who's playing that night. Yeah. Were you like uh, were you like seeing bands like Converge and stuff like that? Like were those like the bands you were into or like what? I was what probably was... more on like the emo side of things. Like so I would go see like um, I don't know, like. <sighs> I heard you mention, I listened to one of the episodes you did with Chuck, uh, and I heard you talk about The Promise Ring, how yeah, that was like a did, super impactful band for you. Yeah, they were big. Um, like br- like Braid and Get Up Kids would play a lot. Like the guys who I lived with were in a band that was called Shyness Clinic that was kind of like in that genre a little bit. So those were the bands that they would play with. And I also really liked those bands too. Yeah. And then I would go like, but then as I like lived in Boston for a little while longer, there were two things kind of happening at once. There was like, Boston hardcore stuff that was really cool and a little bit more metalcore. And so I would sometimes go see shows like that. I was sorry, what year was this? 97, 98. Like, okay, yeah. 96 through 99 is basically like my. So Caven is like starting. Caven's there and Converge is playing and Bane's around and stuff like that. But like, um, also like a bunch of guys who had been in bands like In My Eyes or whatever were starting like you know, the, the explosion and damn personals. And like, there were other bands kind of starting around then. Totally. And then like, there was also this really wild Rhode Island scene that was kind of like around RISD at the time. And that was like Arab on radar and landed and like all these like whacked out like Providence bands that were kind of happening. So we would kind of go all over and see all sorts of different stuff at the yeah. time. But like, I remember, cause like when I got into Boston, I do have to tell this story just because yeah, I please. want to see your face when I yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I, I got to Boston and I was like, I like pavement, like I like uh super chunk, like think I'm pretty hot shit, you know, like because of that. I meet a guy because he's wearing a pavement t-shirt and, and my and like an English class. I'm like, yeah, we're friends now because you have the shirt. Uh right. and 
I don't know how we got, but he was basically like the next day he was wearing a Texas is the reason shirt. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, Oh, it's like emo band. And I was like, what's emo. And so like, I kind of started like listening to them and he was like, Texas, the reason's playing soon. I was like, Oh cool. Let's go see it. And it was Texas is the reason, but they were playing with overcast and kiss it goodbye. Holy shit. (laughs) At the rat. And they're not the same thing. No. <laughs> you know, God. God, no. Like, Kiss and, Goodbye being one of the angriest bands that yeah. maybe ever existed. And there was like a sewer leak at the rat at the show. And they had like put down like cat litter to soak up the sewage that had spilled out. So it was just like toxic cat litter clouds as Overcast was playing. Oh, my and I was God. Like, Aren't we seeing the band that? are we seeing texas is the reason like what's happening here holy shit yeah and like that was my introduction to that world and i got like much more into it uh to the extent that now i'm sad i didn't like appreciate uh kiss a goodbye when i got the chance to see them but like yeah it was pretty it was pretty like bracing to go from yeah like somebody checks your id and like there's you know it's like five dollars for a drink and then you stand over there and like act unimpressed while like the opening bands play to go from that to go to like basement shows where it was like really revelatory to like you'd be standing there i remember the first one i went to it was like um china's clinic who were the guys i, li- I wound up living with and um six going on seven which was this yep. band from boston and the vehicle birth who i still think is one of the most underrated bands from like that i don't era. even know that one they're yeah. amazing and uh they are a little bit more dc sound but they were right. incredible and but that feeling of like you're there you're kind of like mingling you're trying to like fit in a little bit and then all of a sudden the dude who is standing three feet next to you is now like putting on a bass and is about to start playing and you're just like oh shit like this is this is the show like i'm standing in the middle of it and it just kind of starts and that feeling of like secrecy, but also community, it was like really welcoming and it was really like intoxicating. Like I, I'll never forget that feeling for as long as I live of like that, like, oh, you mean the guy standing right in front of me is now singing at me. Right. I mean, it's a thing that comes up a lot on this show, which uh, I have no problem constantly repeating, but <laughs> my favorite thing about punk and hardcore, any of the, or any of the branch offs of it is that there's an upside to the ceiling being so low. Yeah. And that's that if you try just hard enough, you can play with your favorite band. Yeah. You know, or meet your favorite band, talk to your favorite band, interview your favorite band, take photos of your favorite band. It's not impossible. Yeah. It's actually pretty easy, you know? And, uh, and that's just something that I think uh, similar to you, like I connected with pretty young where I was just like, holy shit, you know, like, uh, this this one record this one song changed my life and now and now i could tell the person about it and not feel super weird doing it you know and that whole sense of community was like also bedded into like i would just see those guys around town like working regular jobs you know what i mean like to me like the guys in pavement might as well have been an rem like they just seemed inconceivably enigmatic but also big and pavement was like big but they weren't like they were not as big as like stone temple pilots or something like that. They were like a big band, but like when you would be around and like a dude from piebald made your burrito or like the guys from cave in were delivering the box that you opened to put the records out. Like they were, there was a feeling of like, Oh, this is all like really happening. I'm part of the fabric of something here by being in like, by being here. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Did, uh, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, you're being familiar with like Gravity Records and 31G and stuff like that. Did you have 
any sort of interest or like were you into like more of the uh lesser known screamo stuff you know yeah like- i mean Andy arrow is like my favorite of all that stuff and i was a big jehu fan that's how i kind of got into those other bands but Antioch and like angel hair were like <sighs> huge for me and then like my one failed musical attempt was like a like a a spazzy gravity band that we did one show and it was like an eight minute set. See, yeah. you shouldn't have said that. Cause now I need to know what, what'd you do in the band? And, I was uh, vocals and vocals. Yeah. It was me and this dude, Joshua I worked with and Josh was in a band called Anodyne. Oh um, yeah. And yeah. then I think I tried to recruit the drummer from ISIS and he was just like, no, I can't play that fast. And also was probably like, stop talking to me. <laughs> But I was like, you should fucking just play blast beats, man. We'll just right. go. And he was just like, no, man, I just kind of play slower than that. Like, um, and like we just like we played, it was like four guys who worked at Newberry Comics, and we played one show. I think we we opened for cattle decapitation. Fuck. That's yeah. wait, and what did you did you tell me? I don't think you said what was the name of the band? Well, it was a good question. So I had I had been lobbying for the last of crawling chaos, which I think was the name that the guys who started New Order were going to call their band before they settled on New Order, or it was the name that became Joy Division. I can't remember; it's one or the other. Yeah. But I was like, yeah, this is really the real heads will get this. Yeah. Uh, and then we just called it Crash Activated. Okay. Yeah. That's not bad. That's yeah. good. Yeah. It's, but um, it was like you know, it was like I th- I have a VHS tape of it. Uh, oh, I haven't digitized it. I'm a little scared too. But yeah, that was like my one experience. And I was like, were, was it a floor show? Like a basement yes. show? Yeah. But it was at the Middle East. So we were oh. like, fuck the stage, man. Like everybody yeah. gather around. Like, <laughs> like we're, yeah. we're setting up the kid on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, there, I have a funny, I have, I have, uh, funny thoughts on the band that sets up on the floor now as a band that that was our shit forever (laughs) what is it is this a hot take we hear it no well it's it's now that i'm older i'm an older person and now that i've experienced this in in a in a different way so um yeah of course it's like you're like oh fuck the stage man we're gonna be punk we're gonna play on the floor right (laughs) um and then uh, sometimes if you're doing that and you're opening a show the band that's headlining is is still gonna play on the stage yeah you know um (laughs) Now I kind of feel like it's it's a flex on trying to act more punk than the band that's headlining because I'm like I know that I was that band that was setting yes. up on the floor, but now I've had it. I've had that feeling happen where we're the band that's playing on the stage. And it's like, what and, am I in cheap trick or something? Yeah. Like, like what are you guys trying to do to me? Yeah, and now, now we've had the openers that set up on the floor, and I was like, oh man, am I not cool anymore? <laughs> I feel like I re- like when we played that show. It was I, I I'm talking about this like I toured extensively. We had one show. Yeah. Uh practiced like three times. But we played, I think the other band on that 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 uh night might have been it wasn't album leaf, but it might have been like some like post-rock-ish band that was like there was a dude from Album Leaf, and that dude might have been in like Crimson Curse or Swing Kids or something like that. Tristeza or whatever? Tristeza, yeah, it's right. Yeah. yeah. And so I think they were playing, and I like kind of tried to go up and rock with them, like, hey man we're about to really like let our hair down a little bit. And they were just like, cool. Yeah. Like <laughs> you guys have fun with that. We're going to be up on stage with our backs <laughs> to the audience, with like synths playing like, <laughs> that like was tortoise. Be, yeah. That was going to be my next question for you. So as a, I, cause I, again, I need to know. So as a vocalist, Chris, you, you're, you're like, this is my time. I'm about yeah. to fucking sing in this band. Were you a back to the audience? Like, like spazzing out on the floor kind of guy, or were you uh, facing the crowd? Have a, a little, little bit of both. I got thrown into the drum kit, which was probably like the highlight of the entire set. Like there was movement I, then. Yeah, so there was a lot of movement. I think I spent some time on the ground, 
did a lot of like pointing at my face because I was like, this is what all the guys do in the pictures. So it was just, but like no one knew the words. So there was no sing-alongs. Like there was, yeah, uh, it was, I always get like really jealous when I see like this band's first show and 80 of their friends are like, I know all the words to this. I'm like, these guys don't have a record. I'm going to tell you what that hack is because we pulled off that hack at our first show. (laughs) You do a cover song at your first show. Oh, okay. So you see the photos and you're like, oh man, that's so cool. Everyone knows the words. And you're like, yeah, it's because they covered Minor Threat, you idiot. Everybody, what was yours? You, uh, the first Touche show, we covered an American Nightmare song. Called, okay. uh, covered the song Hearts. Um, I have another band called Hesitation Wounds. At our first shows, we were like, fuck it. We're, we only have four songs, so we have to fill it. So we, we played uh, the most everyone knows these songs. We played uh, uh, Filler from Minor Threat, and we played Territorial <laughs> Pissings from Nirvana. Like, <laughs> like oh, we're little, playing a house. song from a band you guys might know, Nirvana. Yeah, exactly. Sing along if you want. You know, exactly. Help me out. It, that's so for <laughs> listeners. If you want, if you want those cool pictures at your first show, that's sick. You cover something so fucking obvious. Oh man, you pulled the curtain back. <laughs> um. All right, man. Well, shit. Yeah, then I'll hit you with a. Uh, thank you for sharing that. By the way, that was. Uh, that was I felt exciting. like I had to confess. Like you know, it's I love like it. the, the the there's like a certain podcast etiquette that's like I can't go without like saying something embarrassing about myself. And I know there are like four people in my life who'd be like, I can't believe you didn't talk about Crash Activated. You're such a sissy. Well, also, what what might help you at some point is uh is you know I feel like music journalists always get one of the things that like get thrown in their faces a lot is like well you're not in a fucking band like, oh, yeah, you don't know what it's like yeah you don't yeah but it's like you can now say I played a show yeah one <laughs> one yeah. show now I can shit on this one band because I played that one show yeah let me tell you about how Modest Mouse fell off I, I actually know a little bit about songwriting you know I read <laughs> I wrote four of them they're eight minutes in total <laughs> Perfect. Um, all right, man. Well, yeah. When was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing that you'd been working so hard towards? We can talk about with writing or podcasting, whatever you want, whatever, whatever makes sense. Man, this is a great question. I guess like there was a night, there was two nights in Brooklyn when I was at Grantland and we did live shows. So it was, it's not a single thing, but it was like Andy and I did a live show that was about Game of Thrones. And then when I was doing an NBA podcast called NBA After Dark, we did a live show at Baby's All Right uh, during All-Star Weekend when it was in New York. And like people came out to see it. And so like there's obviously there's like a feeling of like, um, you know, confirmation. Like we were like, oh, okay. So like somebody like chose to like actively come out to see something I made on a night. Like that's different than like the passive like, Oh, I heard about these guys on Bill's Pod, so I guess I'll check it out. Totally. Um, so those nights were probably the night where I was like, "Oh, maybe I can keep doing this beyond the point where like, because like when you first start, when I first started at Grantland, I was like, one day they're just gonna wake up and be like, he shouldn't be doing this. Like we can get somebody better than than Chris to do this. So that was the first time where I was probably like, this is really cool. There's a few Grantland pieces though where I was, I was like, I've been waiting my whole life to like write stuff like this. You know, I remember writing about like Sicario, um, which isn't even that great of a piece, but I was like, the way I want to talk about this movie, I've been like waiting for a place to exist where I could put it, you know? And so I think those first few years of Grantland were really the time when I was like, this is this maybe is something that's like resonating with other people beyond just like me and my friends. Does that make sense? It makes Do most people sense. have the like, it was April 3rd, 2004, me and my band covered filler by my threat. <laughs> yeah, the, you know what's great is that with that question, you 
you often get something that you wouldn't have even considered or yeah. or there or the other times where something is very very obvious it's like oh yeah the time we got to play this one festival and we got to play in front of a thousand people or like oh you know like those it's it's all over the place but <clears throat> i mean that makes perfect sense to me you know like writing is really lonely so you 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 and especially like before social media you would just kind of like write something and maybe your friend would be like, I saw you updated that blog. I was really good or something like that. But for the most part, it's like a lonely thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's very solitary. It sucks. And then you're done and you don't know if anybody read it. And so I think that that's the thing that I've kind of responded to in podcasting is just it's so much more of a social experience, like just to do it with friends, to do it sometimes in front of people, to know that like there are people out there who like for some reason listen to me a couple of times a week is just like nuts but it's really 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 heartwarming and honestly over the last couple of years I mean you were talking about it I've listened to you I've been listening to like all these pods and like it's that same thing where it gives you like that feeling of like oh cool like every, every like there's some regularity to my contact with the outside world of like these people and like I get to get their viewpoints on stuff or you just hear them bullshit and it it's nice to know that that can also go the other way and that like some people listen and enjoy it yeah absolutely and your position at the ring you're so you're an editor there right uh yeah i'm a i'm the editorial director which is kind of a nebulous title but yeah okay i was gonna say like with with being or like having positions as an editor um was that something you enjoyed with with like other writers oh yeah i loved it i mean i always loved working with people about on their stuff uh it was it's a hard job sports sports editing is like really hard job because Especially with basketball. I don't know if you're, are you much of an NBA fan? I am the worst kind of sports fan where I'm like, oh, well, if the Lakers are you know, in the playoffs, <laughs> now I'm going to start watching. I'm like every actual sports man, sports fans probably like enemy, but go ahead. Well, for, if you're doing it like, like the way I have to do it, it's like the NBA can be very 24 hour news cycle. Yeah. So like, it, I'm sure like I'll look and there'll be like three trades that just happened while we were recording. Yeah. I don't have to do like that kind of like breaking news stuff anymore, but I enjoyed like working with writers a lot. Like that was always really cool. It's a very, very intimate relationship where you're like basically seeing people's like first drafts and you're trying to help them through it. And you know, you're, you're, you're usually up against a clock of some kind, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's very rewarding. For sure. Awesome. Well, Chris, this was, uh, this was truly, truly a blast. And thank uh, you so much for having me, man. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, uh, I spoke to Ian, uh, Ian Cohen and it, it was one of those, one of those things where I was like, who's Ian's friend? Who, let me look at Ian's, at, uh, who he follows and who follows him. And I was like, oh man, there's a connection there. Yeah. Ian, so, so what's your boy, Chris? I want to talk to Chris. And, I think uh, this is a very fast yes. I was like, yes, absolutely. Just tell uh, me we get in touch. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's so cool. That's <laughs> no, so man, cool. your music has meant a lot to me. The pod's awesome. It's been, it's, it was really cool talking to you. So uh, I can't wait to maybe meet up in person, especially. I, I can't wait to see you live. Can't wait till you cover Nirvana and I can know all the words. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, uh, the guitar player in my band, Clayton, he's, he's, he's exactly the, he's a big sports guy. Big yeah. sports guy. Uh, it was, he, it was funny he would always play Bill's podcast uh, in the van, but it was always the sports stuff. Yeah. So I knew his voice so well. <laughs> so then when I, so then when I got into the rewatchables, I started playing that in the van and he perked up and was just like, are you Is that Bill? Bill Sim? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a funny combination there, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, we'll, we'll definitely hang and uh, and yeah, I look forward to that for sure. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. <laughs> 
And that is our show. And reminder, if you want some more Chris Ryan, hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon for a bonus episode available right now. Thank you for hanging out. I hope you have a good rest of your week. And uh, don't forget, hit up touchamore.com slash tour to see dates for our upcoming uh, spring tour, which is coming very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye.